This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm so glad to have you. Today, you're listening to episode 269, and I'm talking with Tiana Bartoletta. Tiana is a two-time Olympian with three gold medals. She is a long jumper, and she's a sprinter. She placed fourth in the 2012 London Olympics in the 100 meters, and won her first gold medal by leading off the world record-setting 4x100-meter relay team. At the 2016 Olympics, she won two more golds, first with a personal best jump to win the long jump, then again leading off the victorious 4x100-meter relay team. Tiana also won the long jump world championships in both 2005 and 2015, along with the long jump world indoor championship in 2016. She was also a pusher in the U.S. bobsled team in 2012. That is a piece of her story we didn't get to talk about in the episode, but maybe one day we will. Maybe we'll have her back on or she'll come on Patreon and we can talk about the bobsled team because I think that is so cool. Tiana went to the University of Tennessee and is ranked first all-time in Tennessee's history of the outdoor long jump. She went to the University of Tennessee both on an athletic and an academic scholarship. Okay, if you are not following along what Tiana is doing, make sure you go check her out over on Instagram. She's putting out incredible work into this world. Her Instagram is Tiana, T-I-A-N-N-A dot Bartoletta. B-A-R-T-O-L-E-T-T-A. And if you're not already reading her work, she is a phenomenal writer. I just wanted to keep reading, reading, reading as I was digging more into her story. Um, You can find more information on her at her website, tianab.com. You're going to listen to this episode and want more too. I promise you that. If you support the show over on Patreon at the $5 level, you get extended conversations and sometimes pieces pulled out of episodes when episodes end up being long as well as extra episodes every month with my friend Lauren Flores the host of the up and running podcast and episodes with my husband Glenn every month speaking of the up and running podcast make sure you go check it out that is a podcast in the Sandy Boy Productions podcast network my podcast network And Lauren Flores and Abby Stanley are bringing you all of the news in the elite and professional distance running scene. You're going to want to check that out. And while you're at it, check out the Illuminate podcast, the other podcast in the Sandy Boy Network hosted by myself and a couple friends. This week, I had David Block, the CEO and founder of Prevenex, who is a sponsor of this show. Uh, We got to hear about his life story, his career story, and we got to hear a little bit more about the Give Back program that Prevenex has. Um, So check that out over on the Illuminate podcast. All right, friends. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tiana Bartoletta. Well, today on the podcast, I'm so excited to welcome Tiana Bartoletta to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You have been a guest that I've wanted to have for quite a while now, and oh my goodness, um, I've been listening to you on podcasts, reading all of your work the past few days, and I like I wanted to push the interview another day because I wanted to keep reading more. I wanted to keep going. 
that's the thing about writing. It just, it keeps coming. We would have just kept pushing the interview. So we can always come back. We can always do it again. Well, I'm going to keep reading, but there's a good backlog too. You know, you've got a lot of blog posts up and they're all so, so good. When did you decide that you, when did you fall in love with writing? Oh man, probably in elementary school. I've, I, I knew I was a writer well before I knew I was an athlete for sure. And it's just always something that my parents nurtured and my teachers and um, um, I did my first creative writing class in elementary school. And I remember, I remember the first line of that piece and it just writing was an expression that was just so accessible to me. I grew up in a family where, you know, you you had to respect your parents. And if like they pissed you off, you weren't allowed to say, oh, you have just made me so angry. So what I would do is I would go write about it. And sometimes I would be brave enough to put it in an envelope and slide it under their bedroom door. Like, this is what you did. (laughs) (laughs) And I just learned that it was, for me, it felt like a safe way to communicate because I didn't have to stand in front of somebody that maybe I was feeling uneasy with and have this toe-to-toe confrontation. So it started a long time ago, and it's just I keep developing the ability and the skills over time. What was the line? <laughs> the it was, I don't remember exactly now, but it was like the the trees the trees are crying with the wind blowing through their leaves. I and know. I don't remember what the prompt was, but it was just like how that's the opening line for a fifth grader. <laughs> right. I, it was interesting. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I think the ability has just always been there. So let's introduce you to the listeners in case they haven't been introduced to you already. You have been on so many podcasts, though. So there are so many places to learn about your story. Um, talk to us a little bit about growing up in Ohio and when you did fall in love with the sport of track and field. Yep. I grew up in Ohio. I'm from Elyria, Ohio, which is a little city about 20 minutes west of Cleveland in good traffic. Oh, but my city, we had one public high school. And so everybody pretty much knew or was aware of everybody else. I grew up in a, in a place where my mom was like the top banker. (laughs) And so like, even with my teachers they probably did business with her or something. And my dad worked in the one factory in the city where everybody else worked. So it was like, if I did anything, somebody was <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to tell your dad. Or it'd be like, oh, I saw your mom the other day. So it was very much like a little fishbowl for me and something I really wanted to escape. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I did, we were very active as kids, but we weren't a family that did all of the summer clubs and youth soccer, anything like that. We, My dad is a, a martial artist and a boxer. My mom was a dance choreographer before she went into finance, the finance industry. And we were always encouraged to move around. But it wasn't until middle school that I started to do organized team sports. And that's when I played volleyball in the fall, basketball in the winter. And thought that I would be on the wrestling team come spring because why not? My dad wrestled. (laughs) He was the coach. I just thought naturally I would just be able to go 
do that. It didn't occur to me that that was something girls didn't do Uh. until my mom straight up vetoed that plan. And I remember being in the family room, like next to my dad, like we're really lobbying for her to agree with us that it would be okay for me to wrestle, but she was not having it. And so the only other sport that was available during that time was track and field. And so it wasn't a love of the sport that brought me to the sport. It was the fact that I wasn't allowed to wrestle that brought me to track and field. <laughs> the love came later. Yeah, I remember a girl on the wrestling team um, in middle school. Her She had three brothers and her dad was a coach. And so she, she was on the wrestling team. Um, you know, that's really like refreshing to hear that you didn't do like, you know, the club stuff and everything. And you weren't like so singularly focused on it until later, because I think there's just a lot of pressure to put kids in sports and do all the things. And, um, as a parent myself, I've tried really hard to, to not fall into that busyness trap and to sign up for everything. At the same time, you want to give your kids the opportunity to try different sports I was just right. talking to my husband about this last night. I was like, we just, we need to get in the backyard with them and, and teach them different sports, you know, so that we're not constantly toting them around to different places to try every single sport while also giving them the opportunity to try it. It's kind of a, a fine balance there. It is, but it's really important. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's not so much about specializing in something, but about trying everything and maybe you develop an organic love of something over the others Mm. and so your focus is more about not specializing right now so that you can maybe one day go pro but it's just like you like that thing so I put energy into other things but you don't know that until you get out there and you try a bunch of things and like you said It doesn't have to look like, okay, now I have to go be on this travel baseball team. It could literally be you guys as a family go to the park and play uh, as close to a baseball game as you can play or a kickball game and stuff like that. And it's just really important to get out there and move. Also, all of those different movements will help you when you do finally narrow down a sport, being aware of your body in space and how it moves in all the different directions. There's no way, no world in which that is not helpful for you, even after you narrow down your focus to one sport or one event. So good. So true. I love the story of your dad basically just telling you like, hey, you're going to college. We're not paying for it. Figure out a way to make it happen. So tell us a little bit about that because you you did run, you know, you went and ran it for the University of Tennessee, but like you were on an academic scholarship too. Yeah. 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 He told me straight up, he knocked on my door and he's a man of few words. Like he's, he's at meets and people probably don't even notice because he's quiet. (laughs) And so when he asked to speak to you, you pay attention. And when he came in, he said, yeah, me and your mom decided you got to go away to college. And I'm like, duh, I don't want (laughs) to stay here. Like you can't do anything here, but When he added the element that I needed to figure out how to pay for it, then I was like, oh, okay. Because at this point, because of where I grew up, that wasn't something that was common knowledge. There weren't a lot of kids going away to college where I was. And definitely not a lot of kids going away to college on scholarship. And so he, this was a challenge. And I remember before shaking on it, I said, 
um, if I pull this off, you and mom have to buy me a car because <laughs> you still come out better just buying me a car than being on the hook for four years of tuition, room and board, meals, and incidentals, <laughs> <laughs> which is what my mom would kind of refer to our allowance as. She would give us allowance and be like, it's for incidentals. <laughs> <laughs> Because clearly we had no expenses. Um, but yeah, so that that conversation with my father is actually why I decided to just focus on track. And it again, it wasn't for love of the sport. It was because I was horrible at the other two that I was in. <laughs> like I wasn't a good enough volleyball player or a good enough basketball player to get the scholarship. So again, track won because it was my best bet. <laughs> And like no other more profound reason than that. And so that's, I proceeded to embark on this mission to just get like a little bit better and a little bit better so that I could maybe get more exposure, get invited to invitationals where college coaches would be at, go to workshops and clinics. And at the same time, didn't even know academic scholarships existed until it was time to apply for colleges because it's not it's not cool enough to brag about amongst friends. <laughs> like I'm so nerdy, I got school paid for. Like nobody's <laughs> saying that. Um, but I was in National Honor Society. I was in AP courses. I had come up through elementary school in the gifted and talented educational track, so that was already handled. And so. When I applied to Tennessee and I found out that I actually qualified automatically for an academic scholarship um, called African-American Achievers, because the school at the time was really struggling with um, their minority population and just getting people to come to the school, I was elated. I was thrilled. And my mother was like, if you ask her anything about me choosing to go to Tennessee, she was like, academic scholarship like she wanted everyone to know like sure her daughter was going to SEC school where you know track and field was very important to us and the competition was fierce but she got an academic scholarship (laughs) like she was quoted on that every time she's asked I mean it's pretty it's pretty exceptional to get both I mean I just don't think you hear that often at all but you went to Tennessee you followed a coach there right yeah, I followed Carol Smith Gilbert there. Um, I had met her um, probably two years before at a, a junior Olympic development camp. It no longer exists. I wish they did, but it was it was just well put together by USA Track and Field, just you know highlighting young athletes that appeared to have promise and really educating them along with their coaches for how to get better and to improve in the sport. And I remember just being probably fascinated with her and all the knowledge that she had and the way that she spoke. And her system really appealed to my nerd side. Mm -hmm. It was like, how do you take this time, um, this fly time from 30 meters, and then project out and and predict what you can run in the 60, the 100, the 200? Like, I love this. It was like, she was asking us to stand up and recite the equation or she would give us a, a math problem. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is <laughs> track. This is what track is. OK, OK, I can do this. I like this. And I, I remember she gave me some advice about how to run a 200. And I had a summer track meet after this camp and I took her advice 
And my previous best time in the 200 was like, not really impressive, 24.5, maybe 24.7. I ran 23.92, mm. just doing, just changing the mental cues and doing the race strategy as she su- suggested. So needless to say, I was sold on her as a person and was going to go to school wherever she was coaching. And at the time of the camp, she was coaching at Alabama. But fortunately for her, she received a call in the van on the way to the airport offering her the job at Tennessee. So I got to overhear all of this. (laughs) And I looked at my dad and I was like, we're going to Tennessee. I love it. That's it. It's done. (laughs) What were the... In a nutshell, like what were the mental strategies and what were the things that she told you that you were talking about that changed, like you jumped so significantly further after that? Yeah, the well, it was a sprinting for me because I didn't choose to be a sprinter. That was forced on me. <laughs> and so it was never, it was never an event in which I walked to the starting line with any substantial amount uh, of confidence. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I always felt, and honestly, it carries over to this day. And this is with making two Olympic teams in the hundred. I'm still like, I didn't choose this. So that's why here goes nothing. Yeah. I still feel that way. Uh, so when it came to what she said to me, it, it made me more confident as a sprinter. Mm. And here's the thing about that. If you are more confident and competent as a sprinter, you're going to be a better jumper. Mm. It's just like this the way physics works is the way the event works. And so specifically for the 200, it was like, she really spoke to me about being fearless in the first half of that race, because you're talking about an athlete that didn't want to run. And now I'm in the 200 and now there's another hundred after the first hundred. (laughs) And it looks really super far after I get off the turn. And what a lot of young, a lot of youngsters do is they like hold back because it's a 200. <laughs> it's a longer race, right? And she really got me out of out of the idea that you you hold something back so you can have some for later. It's like, no, you give it now. And what you have at the end is what you have. And hopefully, if you're lucky, you have heart and guts and you run with that once you know, the other stuff runs out. And I really took that to heart. And it just gave me um, an additional level of confidence uh, going into the starting line that I felt was invaluable at the time and didn't get anywhere else. I don't want to skip over, you know, your success at Tennessee or I, and I do want to mention that you were a nine time state champion in high school as well. Uh, But let's talk about that 2012 summer Olympics a little bit. Um, gold medal in the four by 100 world record, fourth place in the 100. Like that's a huge year for you. So can you just talk about, um, yeah, your first Olympics and what that experience was like? Yeah, I made my first Olympics while trying to quit track and field. That's, that's crazy. (laughs) Yes, because I hired Raina Ryder, who was my coach for 2012 in an attempt to make a little bit of a comeback Mm -hmm. because for the previous seven seasons. So I won my first world championship title while a student at Tennessee. And then another one uh, the following year indoor, but then went on this like horrible decline for seven seasons. 
And so I was trying to quit because like clear seven seasons was more than enough evidence of me that I was not getting it done and that I needed to let it go. I I felt strongly I was one of those athletes that just didn't know when to hang it up Mm -hmm. because I was getting just enough out of the sport to hang on. Um, Because once you've been a world champion, you're going to always be a world champion. People are going to always want to invite you to their meets. It might not be a Diamond League meet, but some European meet will have you there and you'll make enough money. And so my plan was I'm going to stay in the sport. I'm going to get this coach who will make me a little bit better so I can make a little bit more money so that I can pay tuition because I was back in school trying to pursue a molecular and microbiology degree because my ultimate goal was to go to medical school. So I was literally just running to fund that. Mm. That was it. And through just showing up every day and listening to him and doing the work and changing the way I ate, all to just get a little bit better, literally was going for 1% better. All of that added up to me showing up at an indoor track meet for the 60 running 701 which was world number 1 and both of us myself and my coach are like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly it was like he um on that day I was in the long jump and he pulled me out of the long jump he was like kid you're a sprinter mm. and I was just like what <laughs> and that is when and that was just february that was when I really was like, now I have to put my my plan on that other plan, the plan to quit on hold because I'm back. And in hindsight, that's really um, a really important lesson because one, I didn't quit on myself. And even though the reason I was still in it wasn't, wasn't as profound or as exciting as I want to make one Olympic team before I go, all of that effort still mattered. And the result took care of itself. And so it really freed me to not be so result oriented because I wasn't even thinking about the Olympics. I was thinking about the effort Mm -hmm. and I got the Olympics because of the effort. So that's the, the groundwork of 2012. So getting there and running the rounds was a surreal experience for me because like I said, I always have this little thing where I'm like, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm just a jumper from Illyria. My coach told me before the final, he said, you have to run sub 1090 to get a medal. Historically, 108 is, is what gets you a medal. And so my PR at the time is 1092, like right there, but not there. And I remember what 1092 felt like. It felt like everything I had. (laughs) So I spent the day um, leading up to the final listening to As a Man Thinketh by James Allen, the audiobook, really trying to get control over my doubts, really trying to only speak positivity into myself. Like I am going to run 10-8. When I run 10-8, I will feel awesome. Like i it was 10, 8, 10, 8, 10, 8. And then focusing on, you know, the actual practical execution points that I needed to do to make that happen. So anyway, we're at the final and I'm sure the stadium was buzzing. I'm sure it was electric. I don't know. I don't remember any of that. I remember setting my blocks 
and I was in lane nine. I remember looking to the right, like, damn, that camera's kind of close. <laughs> and then, and then reeling it back in and then running for my life because lane nine is kind of, it seems like it's like a totally different race mm. from everyone else. And not seeing anyone and thinking for a split second, like, did I win? Cause I couldn't see anybody. And so I'm watching the, the results board populate and I'm seeing, I'm seeing the time that won and I'm like, well, coach is right. It took a really fast time to win and then seeing second come up then third and it wasn't my name. Mm-hmm. So now I, now I am aware that I didn't get a medal and I poked my lip out and that, <laughs> and that picture's on Google. I'm like this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I see my name fourth and I'm like fourth. Okay. Fourth in the world. Not so bad. And then I see the time, 1085, and I'm like, <gasps> huge PR. Yes. And then I then I think I had a more boisterous celebration than the winner because mm-hmm. I was like, I have spent all this time like trying to like amp myself up to run this time. And I ran the time. And then jokingly, I was like, maybe I should have also said I wanted a medal. Like since I'm manifesting those, like, things Yeah. <laughs> I should have maybe been a tad more specific, but uh-huh. I did that. Like I did that. I was really proud of that. That fueled my performance in the relay. It was like, because now I'm like, I did that. I know I can, I know, you know, nobody, I'm almost positive. There's no one who could run a better turn than me. So when I walked to the line, I was like, I've not only got the confidence that I'm mentally tough enough to produce the performances, I'm physically capable because I just did it. And so I gave everything I had to that first leg and we knew that it was going to be magic. We didn't know it was going to be that kind of magic, but it just all came together. Okay. I have a few questions uh, regarding the relay because I don't know a lot about the relay and I'm sure a lot of my listeners are curious as well. Um, I feel like a lot of my listeners are heavy on distance running. So the, the track sprinting stuff is, is newer. So a couple questions. First though, I'll ask, how do you get selected to be on the actual relay team in the Olympics? Ooh, if I knew. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's not okay. a dumb question. No, it's not a dumb question. And it is the most arbitrary, subjective, dramatic process. Yes. So what typically happens is you make the final at the trials and the top six places are invited to team processing. And that can make up the relay pool. But what typically happens is the relay pool can be can consist of anybody who is on the t- who is named to the team. That means the 200, the 400, it's anybody. And so what happens is top 6 people in all of the sprint finals get thrown into the relay pool and then we go to relay camp. Uh it's it typically has been in Monaco, but it depends on where the championships are. You do camp for a while. The coach, the relay coach will experiment with combinations and then you'll run in a meet where Team USA will run an A, B or C team, depending on how many bodies there are. And we just kind of get a feel for it. Um, at some point before the first round at the championships, they'll tell you who's going to run. Really? <laughs> 
Yeah, you really just don't know. Wow. You like you day, really don't know. day of? Maybe the night before. Okay. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, and then my other question regarding that is, how do they decide who runs what? Like, why was it decided that you were going to be the lead? That's an interesting question. I don't know how they decided that. I don't remember. I know that I didn't walk into practice like I'm first. Mm -hmm. I know that I didn't do that. Um, Allison had already had experience running the second leg. Okay. Uh, I think it's possible that Carmelita wanted to run anchor and so it was up to the other the other the other two legs were the ones that needed to be decided yeah and I think because I because of my 60 time because Mm -hmm. of how explosive I am Mm -hmm. I think I think me being on first leg was a more obvious choice than putting me on third leg even though I had run third at Tennessee I think because I had proven I was one of the better starters in the world at that time, putting me out out front was a smart move. Wow. I'm trying to think what would be the most intimidating, but any position in a four by one that those handoffs are wild. What kind of, um, like what kind of feelings do you have when you're in that position? Because everything you're doing is, you know, like the team is totally relying on you too, rather than like when you just do your 100 and you're just like, well, I got to get out the blocks for me. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. I, I walked to the starting line with the four by one thinking both things like I need to, I need to set the tone. Mm -hmm. I need to run my best hundred in order to, position my team and then there's also the other side like oh my god if I fall start it's over for everybody if I mess up the handoff it's over for everybody and so there's there's both the feeling of a better performance because it feels like a higher calling because you've got other people depending on you and there's also the pressure of not wanting to ruin it for everyone else as well so that's how I feel on first leg. But I will tell you, I did a three by one a couple uh, like last month um, with the Zurich Inspiration Games and ran second leg. Mm. And the nerves that I oh, felt. Both. Yeah. Yeah, that was horrible. Like that, that was more pressure for me than any Olympic final that I've been in. Cause it was like, I not only have to make sure I leave this mark on time. So I don't get run over by the incoming runner. I have to make sure that my hand is a good enough target for her to get the baton uh-huh. uh, to me. And then I have to make sure that I run a good enough leg to kind of push Allison out of the box and, and then make sure that I pass the baton to her. Um, that was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. And so I prefer to just be on first leg where I only have to deal with that one time. I think so too. I guess now you think about it, the last leg is really the one you, you got to take it home, but you just got to grab it and go. You don't have to hand it back off or you don't have the pressure of like being in the starting blocks. Wow. Yeah, but you do have to watch the entire race unfold. And that also doesn't feel good because I've been there too. That doesn't feel good. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. The four by one is just wild. Those handoffs are so mm-hmm. wild. I love... I love your, I read your, um, the ebook, how to be a track star. Is that what it's called? Why you're not a track star. Why you're not a track star. I knew I was going to say it wrong. Um, (laughs) I was like, just say it confidently. And if it's right, it'll sound good, Lindsay. (laughs) It sounded good. Okay. Either way. (laughs) I read it this morning though. And it's so good. And I just loved how you talked about, 
you know, what you kind of recapped in those the last six years before your success started happening again. Because, man, it's so easy to walk through life like that thinking, well, maybe my time is up. Maybe it is over. Mm -hmm. And you talked about working with this coach and like all of the fine tuning things you did and the changes that you made. And I would just love to hear a little bit more about what that process looked like. Yeah. Um, it was, I was told by someone like, you actually don't know how good you are because you haven't ever been 100% in every area at the same time. Mm. It's like you essentially have never maxed out. So how do you know it's time to quit? Like you haven't even maxed out any area. It's one thing to like have a perfect diet, perfect training, perfect technique, perfect recovery habits and still suck. Mm. Then it's time for you to move on. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly it was not meant for you, but I didn't have any of those things lined up. So it was like, you actually haven't explored what it is that would make you good yet before before leaving. And so that re- that really informed how I approached my coach. That process looked like doing a complete overhaul of my sprint mechanics. I wasn't running efficiently, wasn't sprinting efficiently, and we had to change all that. I looked like SpongeBob SquarePants running for nine months while he like changed my oh. technique and my arms. It was just like, I was like a robot. I was thinking about every single step. It was like, is this right? Is this right? (laughs) For nine months, I did this until the season rolled around and it became automatic because you don't have time in a race to think about these things. But because we were doing it so deliberately every day, all day, I was able to fall back on that in a competition. That was on the technical side of things. Away from the track, I had to eat. (laughs) And I know that sounds crazy, but in track and field, weight and mass is such such an important topic, but it also is taboo because Mm -hmm. of how often people incorrectly address the issue. And so I was of the mind that eating less would benefit me better. And then stupidly, I would, I couldn't afford like to eat healthy. That's what I was telling myself, at least. I wasn't making enough money to be able to stomach what the whole foods total mm-hmm. would be when I left. And, and so I wasn't. And so instead I would eat poor, like fast food. But because I was only eating maybe two times a day, I was thinking, you know, I'm ahead of the curve, mm-hmm. <laughs> stupidly. Um, so I, I got all of that, you know, eradicated all of that, almost cold turkey, started eating six times a day, just real food. And, you know, I, I had help. I had support doing that. So I didn't have to feel the financial burden of trying to just eat better. And unfortunately, we live in a society where it is really cheap to eat bad. Yeah. And that was um very much a I can't call it a sacrifice I personally made cuz at that time someone else was funding funding that diet. Sure. So I did that. Um started sleeping better, sleeping more, um just really paying attention to my body, what it needed, really just listening to people who knew better than me instead of being that arrogant young athlete that thought that she was going to just keep winning forever doing the same stuff. And like I said earlier, once once all those things came together, it was like now you get to see now you get to see your potential. 
now you can know. And then now you can make an informed decision about whether you continue or whether you walk away. And so for me, it was like I put myself in a position where I can continue because I had maxed out those areas. And that's where the ebook came from. Those areas I just, I was not killing it in. I didn't. And for the people who haven't, who are listening, who haven't read it, the five areas are you don't have a why. You don't know why you're out there. And if you don't know why you're doing something, it's only a matter of time before you just let it go. Um, Your attitude sucks. Just like the way we approach anything probably isn't optimal if we're stuck. Um, The people around you suck. (laughs) And this was really important because I didn't put a lot of weight on who my friends were, who I was hanging out with, and what kind of energy suck they were doing or what they were feeding me. And it was really affecting me. And that's important to look at. Um, You don't know what you're doing. And that just means maybe there's a gap between your technical knowledge or, you know, the fundamentals, or maybe, you know, you, you want to start faster out of blocks, but you don't actually know how to use the blocks. So just things like that. And then the last one is you're not treating your body right, either from nutrition or the type of training or the strength or the core work or your nutrition. It's just not right. And so those were all the areas I was completely messing up that I tightened up that led to this part of my career. So you came up with those five topics. I'm just thinking, were you, had you thought of those five things and then you started writing or did you start writing and then it kind of all came together? No, what, how it happened was in 2012, someone in the mix zone after I think the hundred final, or maybe it was the relay asked me how this happened to me overnight. Oh like, gosh. Like, what an overnight success story. <laughs> and it's 2012. And mind you, my first medal came in 2005. Yeah. So overnight, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> and so that really forced me to want to be able to talk about it, almost like be able to give an elevator pitch type answer to those kind of statements. Mm-hmm. Um And so it forced me to reflect on the career and the things that had happened previously. And ultimately that leads to why, why was it so bad? And so the five came first and then I explained the five. And as I was talking about it with people around me, people were other people, especially non-track athletes were like, you know what? (laughs) This applies to me too. Oh yeah. (laughs) Not necessarily for like why I'm not a track star, but this is definitely part of the reason why I'm not where I want to be currently too. Hey everybody. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Tiana. I soaked up so much of everything she had to say in this episode and I hope you're enjoying it too. I want to jump in and just thank a sponsor for making this show possible. And that is Prevenex. Prevenex is where I get all of my vitamins and supplements, my protein powder, vitamins for my kids. This company is doing amazing work. Uh, I mentioned in the intro that David Block, the president and CEO of Prevenex, he's the founder of the, the business. He was over on the Illuminate podcast as a guest this week, and you get to hear all about his story, the story of how Prevenex started, and a little bit more about their give back model, which is really cool. So check him out over on the Illuminate podcast. 
Um, I particularly want to recommend their Joint Health Plus supplement for you. If you are a runner, I know that longevity in the sport is probably just as important to you as it is to me. And the Joint Health Plus, it not only makes your joints feel better, it protects them so that you can have longevity in the sport. I also take their multivitamins and you hear me rave about their protein powder all the time, especially if you follow me on Instagram. My boys and I are always making smoothies with that over there. Um, You all can check it out when you go to Prevenex.com. You can save 15% when you use the code ANOTHER. All right, friends, make sure you head over to Patreon and check out the extra content over there, including some extra conversation with Tiana. When you go to patreon.com slash Lindsay Hine, you can check that out. All right. Enjoy the rest of my conversation with Tiana. I love the why. I love that starting with the why because it's it's so true. Your career, your family, everything that you do, first fi- find out your why. Um, are we going to get, we're going to get a like a I know you have books, like your birthday books, and it has your blog post compilations from the year, the full year, which is awesome. I feel like you're going to write another book, though, aren't you? Well, currently, today, my memoir that I call Gravity has 65,000 words. Like, I am constantly writing, but then 2020, oh. I was like, the book was going to be done in 2020, and then this year happened and like just all of the there's so much going on but also so much I'm learning about myself that I no longer know where to end (laughs) the story (laughs) and so I've kind of I've kind of been in a state of rewriting so yes I am 100% committed to a memoir happening I just have to figure out how it looks because every day that it's I don't declare it finished. It uh-huh. has the potential to change and it's changing. Uh-huh. That is <laughs> that is really hard because the year has so much has changed in this year. So much. What's mm-hmm. been what do you think has been the most challenging thing in 2020 for you personally? <laughs> the question of value, I think, and this is a extremely uncomfortable, slightly vulnerable answer to this question because we are constantly identified. Our identity is closely tied to performance, closely mm-hmm. tied to being athletes. And in a world where there's no sport, what value do you have? And we're also in a position now where sponsors are like, you didn't bring us any value, so we're going to take from you now. Mm-hmm. And it it's a very it doesn't feel good to be in this position to be like, well, you didn't, you didn't run at any meets when there aren't really meets for us to run in and you didn't give our brand exposure. So we're going to invest elsewhere. It's kind of just like, it leaves you understanding that it's business, but also leaves you wondering like, who are you? Like what value do you have and who are the people that value you? This has been very much a question of mine, and I think it's reflected in the pivot uh, that I've made in a lot of ways away from, hi, I'm Tiana, the reigning Olympic champion, to, hi, I'm Tiana, I like yoga, I love to write. Oh, by the way, I do track a little bit on the side. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I think 2020 has been a lot of that for me, which honestly, has been the same struggle that I've been dealing with most 
of my time in this sport because it's real easy to be like, hey, I'm Tiana, the Olympic champion when it's going well. Mm. But when it's not, you're just like, who am I? Because nobody actually cares about me anymore, which is not true. But that is largely how it feels when you're not performing in the sports world. Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. I'm not I'm not making gold medals or winning gold medals right now, but I'm still doing my thing. Um bringing up the sponsors, I'm just thinking this through a little bit. Like do you feel did you feel like for your just for your own well-being, but also for a sponsor, you're sponsored by Nike. You're still sponsored by Nike, right? Mhm. Yes. Do you feel a pressure to like put things out there on social media and keep that Instagram active and to constantly like be in the conversation? No, I feel like because of the personal goals I have and what I would like to do and the way I would like to treat, reach and engage with people, I need to do that. Mm. I don't feel pressure from the sponsor to do that. I think that athletes that don't represent their brands by utilizing these platforms that already exist are, that's a missed opportunity. Sure. But no, I'm, I mean, I already would post my training, you know, I would just do that naturally anyway, because I want to, I want everyone to see the journey and the whole, the whole picture. If, if they wanted me to do things like never post when you mess up Mm. type of stuff, then, then that would be a problem. But it's no big deal for me to kind of utilize the social media platforms the way that I do. Cause this is just me. I mean, if I face plant at long jump practice, I'm going to post it. If I jump, you know, a training session best, I'll post that too. So no big deal for me on that front. Okay. Talk to us about your social media presence though, because you're super active on Instagram. Um, you're really fun to follow. And like, what are your, what are your goals? with you, what you're communicating to your audience. Thank you for asking me that. Um, it's like one of the things I'm secretly proud of because when I started posting again, I had in 2017, I had 3000 followers and I was like, okay, wow, um, let's do this. <laughs> and I think, uh, now I think it's 70, thousand plus I think so I think it's like 80 is it 80 it's a lot (laughs) I think we're in the sevens but I'm like I was really happy that it was through authentic Mm. and true storytelling that brought people in so one of the things that I really wanted to do when I came back was to just reintroduce myself to the world because I hadn't had a voice of my own prior prior to that and so with that that meant like showing the good and bad and just the humanity behind the athlete. That's important to me because it alleviates pressure on me to be someone I'm not when the lights come on. So for example, when we eventually get to Tokyo 2021 and let's say I am back on the team, back on the long jump uh, runway, ready to defend my title. I want everybody who sees me in that moment to appreciate the gravity of that moment, not because I'm like this badass that's made her third Olympic team, but because I'm this human that has been through a lot of shit (laughs) leading up to that point and is going to take her shot. And so when I take that jump, when I initiate that first step on the runway, everybody's kind of like, let's see what happens. So it could go one of two ways. It could be a huge jump 
and I defend my title and the world celebrates that with me or it could not be enough to get a medal and you still celebrate with me because you know what the journey was like. If I were on social media, like, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, I'm going to get this title and I'm the best ever and nobody's faster than me. Nobody jumps farther than me. And I go out and I lose. I have destroyed my entire brand in one moment because I set myself up for that. So that's why I use social media the way that I do. Like, this is just who I am. And I don't have any pressure of suddenly becoming this undefeated version of myself when that's just not the case. Uh, so, so good. Um, what kind of, what do you feel about the 2021 Olympics? I mean, it would be your third Olympic team. Do you think that, do you feel calmer that you've already done this two times before, or do you feel more hungry for it? Where's your mental headspace now that it's delayed a year? I'm definitely calmer because it's a lot easier to pursue something when you know what it takes to get there. So it's like you kind of have a little, you have a roadmap. And so there's there's a calm that comes with kind of knowing that it takes what it takes and knowing that you've done it and you've done it twice before. Um, I'm also hungry in a different way because athletes always imagine what their retirement's going to be like. And it's like this super high note. And more often than not, it's not like that. But I'm really, really hoping that I could just go out of the sport in the way that I want to on a high note rather than, you know, just fizzling out like I thought I was going to do before. (laughs) And so in a way, I'm really hungry to make that happen for myself so that I can be proud of this chapter of my life and close it with um, fewer of the negative emotions that will ultimately surface up when ending something and and transitioning into something else. So it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm curious the, um, when you mentioned you decided to, um, really take the social media thing seriously, like in 2017, you had your voice again, what made you want, like, what was the pivot for you in your life? What made you want to do that? Yeah. So I filed for divorce and I finally got to leave a situation and, Uh, a person who thought they knew better than me, like how to, this person thought they knew my brand better than I did. And I am like, I'm the brand. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure why I allowed that or why that made sense to me. But in that, in the moment I was like deferring to like, Oh, wise one, you're so much older and experience and you must be right. And I did that for like five years and it just, I could see that it wasn't working, but I couldn't, I wasn't in a position to say, Hey, not working. You were wrong. Let's revisit this. And so I just had to wait until I got, you know, I got the courage to, to know and truly believe that there was better on the other side of that. And to step out on faith and do what I need to do to put myself in a position to get to better. And part of that getting to better was filing for divorce, physically leaving, and then turning my attention to me, who I was, who I am, who I want to be, and then sharing that out. That was the catalyst. 
Man, I feel like I want to say thank you because I, I think a lot of people are on the receiving end of what you're giving, you know? And so that's pretty thank awesome. You. Thank you. I don't know why that made me want to tear up, but it did. <laughs> Same. I'm going to keep it together. Though. Um, 2020. So this has been three years um, since then. How have you changed? Like who, what? What would you now say to yourself and, you know, maybe it was 2015 or 2012 or to someone who might be in a similar situation? Mm -hmm. I would say to her, like you can, what you want, what you really want, you can get in a totally different way because the reason I stayed for as long as I did was because I thought, if I disrupted or rocked the boat, then I would lose my, I wouldn't be as good in track and field. I would lose my financial stability. I would lose all these things that I wanted. Instead of looking at it like, okay, if I, if I leave now, I will have the space and the opportunity to figure out how to get back to those things instead of um, just tolerating and settling for what felt like the trade-off. Like I have to put up with this in order to keep this. And when I finally got up the courage, honestly, which came through just cultivating that on the yoga mat, believe it or not, just like, because yoga forces you to just look at yourself. And as I started to get to know myself in that way, I began to kind of give myself a little pep talk, like, yeah, maybe you can, you can do this. You can figure it out. Maybe like, maybe it's not going to be the end of the world. And that's, that's, that's really all I had to do was just believe in yourself and the tragedy of people being in situations like toxic relationships or even abusive relationships is that the thing that dies first is your belief in yourself Mm. because we have outsourced it to other people, other individuals. We have lost that control, that autonomy. And so grabbing that back inch by inch, bit by bit is how I was able to finally see that, you know what, if I start to suck at track after this, okay. If, um, if I have to go work a couple jobs in order to get the financial stability that I'm scared to death of not having now, okay, so be it. I'll figure it out. And so that's what everybody has to do. What is it that you're dreaming about? What is it that you want? And believe you can figure it out. I mean, part we have Google. Type any question in there and somebody somewhere has a YouTube video or a tutorial or a blog post or a PDF about how to do that thing. We can figure it out. We don't have to tolerate bullshit because someone else has convinced us they have it figured out for us. We can do that. She's also for hire for motivational speaking. (laughs) Yes. Adding that to the resume for sure. (laughs) Um, wow. It kind of reminds me in a different way of the pep talk you gave yourself or the, the mantras you were saying before that 100 meter, the race where you got fourth, like that I'm going to run this time. It's just like you're, you're training your brain in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's important. You speak these things 
into being. And I know that this is difficult for a lot of people because positive affirmations is kind of like a little buzzword now, a little trendy phrase. And sometimes it feels like BS. Like it's, But the amazing thing about the power of words is that they start to change your mind. And so it's important to speak things even before you fully believe it. If you want to believe it, if there's a part of you that eventually wants to believe it, eventually wants it to be true, just start speaking it now and watch how your brain and your actions change and align to make that happen. Because one thing we do not like as humans is cognitive dissonance. We don't like to like be wanting one thing in the face of another thing. We don't like that. So we work really hard to not have that, to make everything congruent. And that's why positive affirmations and positive thinking and speaking these mantras, that's why they really work. Convince us all to do yoga. And tell us, when did you start doing yoga? I started doing yoga a long time ago, but it was literally like I already had the Gold's Gym membership and there was like a yoga class on the schedule. And so I'd pop in. And that's fine if that's where you have to begin. But yoga was because I couldn't sleep after training. I couldn't, like, just could not come down, couldn't, couldn't um, turn off my central nervous system, which is largely what sprinters and jumpers are training. I needed a counter to that. And so I started with restorative yoga. And I'm telling you, I would start paying attention to the teacher and then I'd end up asleep. Like (laughs) I would end up asleep and it would be like maybe the only sleep I've had in like three days. And so I kept wanting more and more. It's like I'm sleeping even. (laughs) And I promise you guys, if you go to a yoga class and you fall asleep, if you have a good teacher, they will let you sleep because that too is yoga. Yes, Yoga is the unification of your mind, your breath and your body. And most of us, only experience that when we're sleeping. (laughs) So that is yoga. So don't even worry about it. Just get out there and try it. But that was my gateway drug into yoga. It's like, finally, I'm resting, I'm sleeping because I was training so hard. And, you know, I was married during that time. And it was very stressful. So that was like my piece. And I wanted more of it. So then I started, I added yoga as an active recovery day because of the movement. And I would leave that class feeling challenged and my muscles feeling good because as you guys know, who run, a day off should not be a day of not moving or you're going to feel like crap the following day. And so it really worked as active recovery for me because I've had the fortune, good fortune of having good teachers. They were like dropping knowledge bombs and like, Dharma drips and just the yogic philosophy just before I didn't even realize it It was just like permeating me like it was just and one day I just woke up like who I'm meditating and like it's just it's just like everywhere I'm saturated in yoga philosophy and one of one of the things is like you're not entitled to the fruits of your labor that's from the Bhagavad Gita but you are obligated to labor. Like you have to do the work. That is your job on this planet is to do whatever it is you're put on this planet to do. What comes of that? Not your business, not your responsibility. All you can do 
is all you can do, right? And that really resonated with me as an athlete because so many people in my life, including sponsors, including coaches, are very much like, we need to go win this thing. Mm. And the athlete's like, I'm going to try, but damn, I'm, I can't control the seven other people. Like, they're all being told the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I, what do you do? You focus on what you can do. And yoga taught me that. And so that's one thing one of it made me a mental warrior yoga did because it was just like this is all you can do all you have is this mat all you control is your body and your breathing and your mental state and then throw your hands in the air for everything else so it made me mentally tough it also gave me a level of physical awareness that has kept me from getting injured because i know where the line is i know where to stop i know where to rest i know where to take a break and those two things by themselves, I think every human would benefit from. Okay. So last year you were diagnosed with the fibroid tumors and you had to have emergency surgery. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. Did yoga play a part in keeping calm in that? Because I mean, you were hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging. That's a really big, that's scary. That's a big deal. Yeah. So yoga is the reason I knew something was wrong in the first place. So well before I even stepped foot in a doctor's office, I knew something was off, but I didn't know what it was. And then I did what most of us do and try to attribute it to a bunch of other stuff. (laughs) Um, So they first told me I was anemic and we thought that was it. And I didn't get much better. And I my iron levels didn't go up. And It wasn't until December where I had been hemorrhaging now for 45 days at this point. And it was just miserable on all levels, still trying to train and, you know, be in intimate relationships was just not a good situation. And now like my energy feels like it's leaving my body too. Really bad situation. I demanded to see um, a gynecologist because I was like, it's clearly not an iron issue at yeah. this point. <laughs> and once we did that, the gynecologist, you know, started out asking me um, the general questions and to see if it was the birth control's fault. And honestly, because I have been sharing and talking about this in a lot of ways, one of my followers said, sent me a DM that said, ask for a transvaginal ultrasound. Yeah. Just in case. Like I had didn't even know that this existed. So I'm in the office and I asked for one and he says, "Well, um we'll tr- we'll try to get you one." I was like, "I need one." Yeah. Like I'm dying. I'm dying. Like I'm either going to get this and we and we look inside or I'm going to retire. I can't I can't do this anymore. And so the US Olympic committee's medical team and this doctor knew that retirement was on the line for me if we didn't figure this out I made that very clear he moved some stuff around his schedule and I got the ultrasound and when I tell you it looked like exactly like an ultrasound of a baby in a womb Mm. that's what we saw on the image it's just this huge tumor in my uterus just with its own vascular source doing its thing and just draining the life out of me and crazy that the tumor itself is benign but would have killed me anyway had we not discovered that because at that point 
I had three fewer pints of blood than a normal human being had trying to operate all my organs and think clearly. It was just really a disaster. It was so bad that he scheduled me for surgery three hours later on the same day that I found out. I mean, does the thought even cross your mind? Like, what if I wouldn't have demanded this? Um, yes and no. So my best friend, it crosses his mind all the time. He also is who's working with me. And I sometimes in passing joke about like, I'm happy about this workout, even though it was crap, because, you know, I was I was dead in November. Yeah. (laughs) And like, it's funny for me to say, but it's actually it's actually true. And although it doesn't serve me in any way to think about what if I hadn't, right, because I know how that story ends. Yeah. Because the doctor told me that I wasn't I was one hard workout away from just a coma from just organ failure. I know how it ends. And so I don't really, I don't really um, dwell on that for myself, but it did make me reach out to the fibroid foundation. It did make me become an advocate for women who know something is wrong, but can't get people to listen to them enough to give them the tests that they need. Mm -hmm. And the fact that 70% of women have these tumors in their uterus, 70%. And and it's not the first thing that a gynecologist would look into when a woman presents with menstrual distress or a disorder. Blows my mind. If 70% of all of your patients will have this condition, why isn't this something you look into to check off the box first mm-hmm. before prescribing birth control, before doing all of these other things? It blows my mind. It really just made me angry. And but it also just it also made me want to make sure I use my voice to continue advocating for women being their own advocates in when it comes to their health. So how are you now? Like, is are you do you feel back to normal? Yeah. So after the surgery, I had to take six weeks rest, which I did. Um And at that time, I'll be honest, the Olympics for me was a long shot. This was just about like, I just need to be alive at this point. And I didn't honestly think that I would make the team or let alone defend my title if the Olympics went on as scheduled. So that's another reason why. Yeah, that's another reason why um, 2021 wasn't as devastating of a blow to me as it might have been to my peers, Uh because I'm. I didn't do my first training until March. Yeah. Uh, we usually start training for the Olympics October and November before, and I was already five, six months behind, which is pretty impossible on this level of competition. So um, I had the surgery. I rested up and still was so depleted from the tumor that I wasn't recovering and my numbers didn't bounce back. So I actually had to apply for a therapeutic use exemption from World Athletics to get a blood transfusion because my body could not create the blood that it needed to heal and put the iron back and none of that stuff. And so waited a couple of days, got that approved, went and got the blood transfusion. And once that happened, my body Mm. was body bounced back, but I just didn't have enough blood to do it on my own. 
And now I am 100%, if not better, than I was before. Because honestly, we don't actually know how long this tumor has been killing me. Yeah. <laughs> we actually don't know. We think that um, it actually began to affect me in 2017. So wow. I've made it that long um, slow on a, another slow decline. But I'm on the mend. That's so great. So that, that blood transfusion was a one-time thing. Now you're good. And that's so awesome. I'm so happy for you. And that, I mean, what a crazy thing to happen to anybody, but when you rely on your body as your job and like your Olympic dream for 2020 was pretty much maybe not in the shitter, but like that's where it was headed. It was. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. And I, the pep talk that I would give myself and the, what I would get from my, my best friend is just like, just take your own advice, take the same advice you give to other people, do what you can take your shot and be okay with however it comes out in the wash. And that's a really hard, difficult thing to get to, but that's ultimately what the plan was. It's like, okay, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to practice every day. I'm going to use the time I have to prepare as much as I can and take my shot. But ultimately, it was a long shot (laughs) or it would have been. Okay. So before we go to the end of podcast questions, I want to hear a little bit about some of the things you're doing right now, like the the SIPSIS social. Tell us about that. Yeah, I'm an introvert. You probably can't tell, but I am. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an introvert. And so when... COVID happened and the quarantining started happening. I was like, I'm going to thrive. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to see people anyway. <laughs> I'm a homebody anyway. And then as time went on, it was just like, oh, man, I'm really missing connection. I'm really missing my sisters, my actual sisters in Ohio. Like, I miss those conversations. And so one thing I absolutely believe is like you create the things that you want. You just create them. Don't wait for somebody to bring it to you or to do it for you. And so Sipsis Social Club is me creating a place to get the connection that I was craving. And and if there's anyone else feeling that way, I've got it. We can do that together. And it's it's been so much fun for me to just kind of sit, even when we're not talking about anything profound or specific, it's just nice to have that space being held for me. So that was really important. Um, another one is teaching yoga on Saturday mornings, the Breathe and Move uh, yoga series. And this came from the fact that I'm still still doing yoga almost every day with my own teachers who have shifted to Zoom Mm -hmm. and me telling people like, it's a good time to try yoga because you don't have to go anywhere. Nobody has to see you. You can like stop video and like try to figure out how to get in all the poses without people, you know, without thinking people are looking at you. And I thought like, since I'm out here trying to convert everyone to yoga, (laughs) Why not, you know, actually teach it so that I can help people experience it and maybe get them confident enough to then set them free to go try it on their own. So that's where that came from as well. Are So you're doing that. Are you like doing it on Instagram live? What does that look like? No. So you have to register for it. Okay. 
and then I do it via Zoom. Okay, yeah. But the registration's free oh. and donation-based if you feel like it. Mm-hmm. And you get the link, and then it's like, hi, we're going to do yoga together. And um, it's not going to be too hard, and you're not going to die. <laughs> is it 45 just, minutes? How long It's is 45 it? minutes long. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I started doing my Pilates on Zoom once a week once um, once COVID started happening. So did you have to, like... I know you've been doing yoga for a long time, but did you have to like, how do you decide your, your flow and stuff? Like, did you just, do you just have routines memorized from the years of yoga that you've done? Well, yes and no. Yes. Because you just use your, you utilize your own practice, but I also am a certified yoga teacher. Oh, you are. So this is something that, yeah, something that I'm trained to do. Um, so it depends. Like sometimes I will write out a sequence and then synchronize it to a playlist, which is like doing the most, Yeah. (laughs) but I enjoy that. And then other times, like with these 45 minute flows, I'm pretty much making it up as I go just just with how I want to move. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to do one. What time do you do them on Saturdays? Yay. They're 8 Pacific time. Okay. 9, 10. 11. Yeah. Is that 11? Uh-huh. <laughs> 11. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That sounds so awesome. And and the Sipsis social, like, how do you facilitate that? Because I feel like I'd get nervous if I was facilitating something like that, that people would be, like, talking over each other. And, like, do you ask a question and everybody kind of talks on that? What does that look like? You sound just like me before the very first one. I was like, okay, how's this going to go? Like, I don't even, I don't even want this position. I just want to be one of the people on the call, uh-huh. like just being loved on, but it comes naturally. It's, it, there aren't too many people on each call where it just kind of becomes chaotic. And honestly, the first minute or so people are all looking at me to do something. Uh-huh. And so I kind of just, I know everybody's names now. So I kind of just ask everyone how they're doing. And then we, and then eventually, because women are great for this, we start nourishing and talking to each other and offering advice and, you know, stuff like that. So it becomes very organic. I love it. Okay. Last question before end of podcast. What is your most viewed or read blog post? Ooh, I honestly think it's Mary Kane one. Being Mary Kane um, got a lot of attention, <laughs> a lot of attention. I think that was just a really important mo- moment in society, especially on on the heels of Me Too, and people were really receptive to, you know, Me Too spilled out into like Hollywood and then other industries, and people had been asking, "Are there Me Too stories in track?" for a while because nothing was really said. And so when she told her story, it was very much an explosive piece because people wondered if we were experiencing abuse in any kind in the sport. And she spoke up about it and equally explosive, the reaction she got from the public and the silence from her peers and other athletes was deafening. And I think my post just kind of filled a void um, that people were curious about and wanted to be informed about. So yeah, I think that was the most read post. We'll link it in the show notes. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's so like with abuse, it's so hard because I think people, it seems are scared when it's like, 
you think you hear sexual abuse, you hear physical abuse, mm-hmm. and people brush off emotional abuse. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> and you know what? And it's and it's understandable. I always say this. I am so happy you have no clue what emotional abuse is like. So let me start there. Like I am so happy you can't wrap your mind around this because that means you never had to be a victim of this. Mm. But because I have, let me help you understand what this is like. And I always start from there because I don't really want to fault people for not having firsthand experience with something horrible like this, right? But um, if you continue to not listen to the people who have, then we have then we have a problem. And that's kind of where the blog post came from. Because it is much more easy to accept physical abuse and understand why that's so awful and and financial abuse and sexual abuse. But emotional abuse, a lot of us tend to be of the mind like, oh, you just need to toughen up mm-hmm. or like no one had a gun to your head. So why didn't you just leave? And that's just that's not the full scope of it. And so to be able to be on the other side of my own and to help people understand what that's like. That just felt like a responsibility of mine. It's powerful. Um, the tweet that you shared, I, I like responded to it today of the gymnast talking about athlete a, and Mm -hmm. I thought it was so powerful what she was saying, like giving people like responding with grace so that you give people the opportunity to change Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I just, I thought that was so profound. Yes. So that's my, I mentor her. (laughs) She considers me her mentor. Her name's Anna. And she's a Scottish pole vaulter who has been through the ringer and has dealt with her own um, abuse at the hands of a coach and was let down by the Federation and the justice system and has really stepped into, um, what for her is a vulnerable position of being vocal about, you know, speaking up and reporting and all these things. And she really just became aware of how intolerant people were for people who were trying to evolve. And I told her it's a kind of the same with uh, the racial tensions right now in this country and, you know, really pushing people to not just be not racist, but anti-racist there's still there's still a contingent of people who are like, no, but you said this in these tweets four years ago, and so you're canceled, mm-hmm. right? There's very much that that feeling. And she said that she was seeing this happen um, with within organizations like where people were trying to make improvements, but were getting pushback from people who were like, no, but you're the one who like allowed X, Y, and Z. And so in both of those situations, grace is really important because we are the problem, which means we are also the solution. Mm. And so if we don't have the room to grow and figure that out, then we can't ever get to a solution. And that's what she's saying. It's really important. And and not just in terms of the reporting for abuses in sport, but just in our relationships, in society, in politics, you got to have the grace to leave room for the improvement that we're fighting for. You just have to, there's no other way to get it. So good. 
I'm going to leave it at that because it's just too good. It's too good to even <laughs> say anything from it. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. What's one thing professionally or personally that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? Finish, publish the memoir. Like I need, that's like, I want that. I can't wait. And <laughs> is it definitely called, um, what did you say? Do you definitely? I mean, I call it gravity. Okay. If I self-publish, it will stay gravity but who knows what will happen if it gets shopped to somebody and they think it needs a different name or something. Do you want to get a publisher or do you want to self-publish? Um, I think I can do both. I mean, a lot of times you can self-publish something that does really well that it later gets picked up. So I think both or whatever will allow the story to get into as many hands as possible because I know it can help as many people who, who read it. Okay, you're coming back on when you go on your book tour, right? Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, what's an accomplishment you're most proud of? I am proud of leaving my marriage. That was really hard. That was really hard for me. And I thought of a million reasons why I shouldn't. And I did it. I pushed the fear anyway. And that's why I can sit here in front of you today. Mm, I'm glad that you can. What is the best, most recent book you've read? I have a book club and we just read Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, which was really funny, but also tackled very real and relevant issues um, with such lightheartedness and straightforwardness that it was a breath of fresh air compared to our current current climate. So like if you don't really want to escape where we're at because that feels irresponsible but you're also super bombarded with everything that's happening. Born a Crime is a really good book to kind of remain educating yourself about while being entertained and feeling hopeful. Cause there's a lot of books that are like, mm -hmm. we're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of things that are just like, it's systemic. There's nothing we can do about it. Throw your hands in the air. This is more like we Trevor Noah's funny. He, um, Grew up in a very crazy place, South Africa, with under apartheid. So it's just like, it's all of these things, but there's hope at the end. Okay. I don't even know why I haven't read this book. Like, <laughs> I've wanted to read it for so long, and I've heard so many good things. Same. I was the same way until someone said, someone in the book club suggested we read it, and then I finally did. And I was like, why did it take me so long to get here? How long have you been in your book club? Is it is it like local friends or what? Nope. We have a few different countries represented on my book club class. And I think I've had the book club since 2017, actually. It was one of the first things I did because I like to read and I like to discuss books. And so, again, I created the thing that I wanted. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Do you, do you have a recent show that you've binged or do you watch TV? I do watch TV. What did I, what have I recently, I rewatched Newsroom on oh. HBO, which is such a good show. Um, I haven't, I haven't actually binged anything up to date. I tend to rewatch okay. shows like Sex in the City. Uh -huh. Law and Order SBU is like a constant marathon really? that's on. It's almost like white noise for me uh -huh. at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Who is someone fun, motivating, or inspiring that you'd like to have coffee, tea, or cocktail with? 
um cocktail first. Mm. Yes. Um I actually will choose Dalila Muhammad. Okay. And for people who don't know her, she is a fellow track athlete. Um she broke the world record in the 400 meter hurdles. But she intrigues me because she's so quiet and like but you can feel her energy and I just want to sit down with her and be like, "Tell me all about you." <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. I want to know all about you. So yeah, she's who I would choose. Um, I'm not sure if I was supposed to have a celebrity answer or something, but like that's kind of who I'm like. I want to know about you, and that's very much the way I am. If if I engage with you or interact with you online, and I want to know more about you, I'm going to be like, hi. Can we be friends? <laughs> okay, that's like exactly what you and that's what Steph Bruce posted about you the other day. Yes, it is exactly what she did. And what was amazing about that is because had she not done it, I probably would have done it. <laughs> I love that so much. That was so cute when you were, I watched her video, you racing her, one of her sons. Yeah, that was huge fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's genetics, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. I think this is the last one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is your one message to send to the world? My one message to send to the world is is going to sound cliche, but hear me out. Be yourself. Mm-hmm. We've all got social media. We've all got all this instant connection to each other. And almost all of us are only posting our highlight reels, the best of the best of the moments. And now that you know that, feel free to just be yourself. <laughs> okay? It's like... Don't work so hard to try to keep up with the highlight reel of someone else's life. Be yourself because representation matters. And when we hear that, we're usually thinking, you know, women in the workplace or minorities um, in spaces where minorities typically aren't. But it also means represent yourself because there's going to be someone else who relates to some part of your story. And if you are curating your story in order to post the highlight reel of your life when you share yourself, literally or figuratively, you're depriving that person that needs to see that part of you because that's who they are from having that role model, from from getting that little boost of energy to keep moving because you're you and you have figured out how to move on and up. Just so be you because somebody is watching who needs to see that. Represent yourself always. It's too good. You're too good. I like, I'm so thankful for this conversation that I got to be on like the other end of it. It's such an honor, but also like, I can't not wait for my listeners to hear this because there's just so many valuable takeaways. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Tiana, for sharing your story, your wisdom. It was such an honor to talk to you. You were such a fun guest and I cannot wait to read your book. You all can find Tiana on Instagram. She's Tiana.Bartoletta. You can find me on Instagram. I'm LindsayHine626. And you can find me on Twitter at Lindsay Hine and Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine where we have a group as well. Friends, make sure you join that group. It's a lot of fun and casual and it's just a place where I can get to know you a little bit better. I'm definitely super active in the group myself. Um, Yeah, just search groups on Facebook. I'll have another podcast. 
Uh, then lastly, make sure you check out our sponsor, Prevenex. Grab yourself that Joint Health Plus. Go to Prevenex.com and use the code ANOTHER for 15% off your order. I think that's all I got for you. Uh, we've got another episode with a coach next week. We're alternating athletes and coaches um, right now. I have four coaching episodes coming up that are really great, but I'm, I'm putting an athlete, a current athlete episode in between the coaching episodes so that you don't get burnout with too many coaching episodes right in a row. But I will tell you, these coaches are awesome. Um, next week, you're going to hear from Andrew Castor, Dina Castor's husband. So uh, he's the coach at the Mammoth Track Club. All right, friends, have a great Friday. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And as always, I will see you next Friday.